0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Get the barocca supplies in, check the train strikes schedule and prepare for an unhealthy beige diet washed down by lukewarm white wine. Is it really already a year since Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng endured one of the most eventful party conferences in living memory? I'm afraid it is. The party conferences are here again. The Lib Dems have been to Bournemouth already. Ed Davey has been in and out of a canoe. Labour are preparing to decamp to Liverpool in a fortnight, but this weekend the Conservatives head north, hopefully on a quick train line to Manchester, and the IFG will be there too. So what will be the big issues being debated on the conference floor and in the fringe events? Just how unified is the Conservative Party right now, or should we be expecting to see different factions differentiating themselves? What does Rishi Sunak need to do, and what might he announce? All that to come on today's episode. Joining me throughout, is IFG programme director and I think she calls
1: herself Veteran Conference Survivor, Kath Haddon. I certainly do not call myself that, but I am still here after last year's conference, so I suppose I am. What's your top conference survival tip? Uh dinner. At least one solid meal during the course of the day, preferably before the evening receptions. And I'm delighted that we're joined by not one but two guests today.
0: In the studio with us is Robert Colville, Director of the Centre for Policy Studies and Sunday Times columnist. Hi Robert. Hello. I assume you've got a busy fringe schedule set up as well
2: yeah absolutely just uh, get there on Sunday lunchtime and then run events back to back
0: And joining us down the line is James Heal, political correspondent at The Spectator. Hi, James. Hello. You've already been to one conference, I understand. How are you bearing up?
3: Yes, well, I mean, this is sort of magical mystery tour around the United Kingdom. First of four conferences I'll be going to, which was Bournemouth this weekend, um, just gone. And uh, I mean, went to their infamous Glee Club, which is a bit (laughs) like half football terrace, half Church of England congregation. So they'll say, please turn to page 16. Uh, We'll now sing a song about Charles Kennedy's alcoholism. It's a really um, surreal uh, experience there. And uh, as one party uh, long-serving member put it to me is that we do have a internal party democracy, unfortunately, <laughs> and that's a real contrast and a novelty for someone who's very used to the Tory uh, autocratic form of leadership and governance at conference.
0: So you've been seeing how different parties do things. What were the big issues, would you say, at the Lib Dems?
3: Europe and housing were the two real ones. Um, and I think that the activist base really wants uh, Ed Davey to go much more pro European, embrace a, a rejoined stance. But uh, he's obviously sort of quite uh, chastened by last time in 2019 when they ran a really big stop Brexit campaign. So I think next time we'll be focusing much more on hyper local campaigns across the country. And the other issue, of course, was housing. And uh, they tried to water down their housing targets, uh, but the membership overruled them on the floor. And I think that was also with one eye on the blue wall seats. Those 80 or so seats across mostly in southern England were they came second to the Conservatives in 2019.
0: And did you get the sense that this was a party feeling it might have some kind of influence after the next election? Was that the sort of basis on which the discussions were being had?
3: I think that they were very keen to downplay PACs and coalition. But what's clear is just how much the Lib Dem is now an anti-Tory party. I was listening to Ed Davey's speech. There were 27 times he attacked the Conservatives compared to just One for the nationalists in Scotland and and three for Labour. So it's clear that they're positioning themselves to be an ally of Labour and very much hope to both serve as anti-Tory forces. And based on the old maxim that when Labour does well, the Lib Dems do as too. I think the thing probably they'd stop short of a formal coalition, but clearly hope to kind of advance their agenda in the next Parliament.
1: I agree. It's very noticeable how much Davy attacked the Conservatives in his speech, but I kind of think it's inevitable given where we are. I mean, a it's the party of governments, so that's likely to happen, and b most of the seats that the Lib Dems find themselves particularly competitive in are conservative facing ones. So that's slightly inevitable and I, I suppose see the experience of the coalition. They know they got burned by the electorate for that. So showing clearer water in that direction. It's, it's not just the lessons from 2019 that they're dealing with. It's also the letters, lessons from 2015 when they got almost wiped out. So it kind of feels inevitable that they'd be in that space.
0: What did you make of the Lib Dem conference?
2: Um, I loved the housing rebellion. I absolutely loved it, not least because it was young people rising up against the old, which is something I've been waiting to happen for quite quite a, a long while. I mean, what was especially uh, especially lovely was the way that Tim Farron claimed that centralised national housing targets were were a Thatcherite measure, which by implication means that the Lib Dems have been a Thatcherite party for the last decade, <laughs> and just got absolutely smacked around the chops by the grassroots. And, and the fact that they were all wearing t shirts saying "Build more bloody houses," which is you know kind of engraven on my heart. is... So, yeah, I'm very happy about that.
0: You're very happy heading down with the Lib Dems. Okay, let's look ahead to the Conservative Conference, which may even be underway by the time you listen to this. James, I'm assuming we can only have less drama than last year.
3: One would hope uh, for the sake of the economy the economy and the country. Um, I mean, I was at last year's one and I saw firsthand the 45p tax cut killed before my eyes. And uh, Liz Trust co-author Harry Cole had a stand up row with the director of comms in number 10 back and forth in the hotel lobbies. It was um, extraordinary sights. I think it will be less than last year. Uh, I think most of what Rishi Sunak does is in opposition to what his predecessor did, and so he very much wants to present a calm, united, and stable front. But really, I think you know, I was talking to one Conservative MP last night, and they just said this is Rishi Sunak's sink or swim moment. Real sort of roll of the dice here. He has the, all the eyes of the nation on him, all the press corps, and he wants to make a clear shift from the kind of first year in office into the second year, which is that right. We've stabilised the economy. Now we want to move forward and have some key dividing lines with Labour on values and prove that he is, as the conference slogan says, the right person to take the long term decisions for the. Future of the country and the
0: economy, Robert. What do you feel the mood is in the Conservative Party going into conference? We've obviously got quite a lot of Conservative MPs announcing they're retiring. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean it, it, going
2: to conference. It, it, it's not giddily optimistic. <laughs> you, you just have to look at where the polls are. But I think that this is this is in some ways the continuation of a trend which has happened, been happening for the last. Five, five years or, or, or more essentially steadily fewer MPs have been going to party conference I mean, everyone also says oh yeah is there going to be a rebellion at conference and the answer is, is always no partly because of the in- the natural instinct among all parties to sort of rally around the flag but also just if you don't like what the party's doing you just don't bother turning up to conference especially because nowadays the Conservative Party makes MPs pay their own way which um, is you know it's a, it's, it's a, you're, you're probably you know, if you go there and do the full thing and you, you're buying drinks for your activists you're probably out a couple of grand and you know a lot of people think actually I've got quite a marginal seat. I could be better off served getting some extra campaigning in. So I, I think there is going to be factionalism at the, at the party conference fairly obviously because that's what happens. Liz Truss is going to pop up making another one of her rare interventions to tell us we, we need know about to tell us we need more growth. And um, the new Conservatives I think are going to have a, a launch of their kind sort of sort of faith and family driven agenda but my take on it is that i think um th- most of that stuff is less about trying to persuade the leadership to shift in their direction now and more about just putting down banners for whatever happens in 2024 on the assumption that the party is in is in opposition so there's a kind of there's a, there is a sort of ideological tussle going on but it's it's sort of all fairly polite and it's not going to be people denouncing the current leadership it's going to be people saying you know Totally should be fantastic, but they should be doing all of our stuff.
1: Where I slightly dif- or disagree is the Conservatives are now pretty much in a sort of rolling leadership contest, just because they've had so many leaders in the last few years. And because polls being where they are, there are still parts of the Conservative Party in government and outside that are thinking about the future. And, you know, it may not be above the surface. It may just be in the backs of people's minds, but... There are still people who are circling, thinking about the last leadership contest, thinking about the next one, thinking about the future of the party and so forth. And you saw this in Liz Truss as much as she said, she doesn't want to be prime minister again, she doesn't want to be in number 10 again. She clearly is invested in the future of the party and trying to affect that. And presumably her appearance at party conference is part of that. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And, and, and Theresa May was apparently going to be up there too. So let's hope the two of them don't actually bump into each other. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some scenes. Um but but the point but the point is that kind of always happens. Yes. There is, yeah, every yeah. political party, e, e, even Labour, there are still you know politicians. They're politicians, right? They're yeah. always thinking about what happens, what happens if, and what happens next. And you know that that was happening last year. That was happening the year before. That's been happening happening all the time. The, the point is, I think it is about the future it is not about the present
1: yeah and that's that was going to be my second point which is the Rishi Sunak sink or swim make or break i mean it's also it's really going to be the one defining conference of his premiership because uh, timetables for an election being as they are you've got a possibility of a may election that looks pretty remote at the moment uh, your other option is wait until the end of january 2025 or go sometime next autumn and if it is sometime next autumn you can have a conference but it's going to be right before a general election campaign so you know then where you are in the polls and you know then whether or not this is a sort of well done we managed to claw back the polls we're now a fighting party or you know you're still a long way behind. So this is the sort of moment that, that yes, he he has the opportunity. The problem is for Rishi Sunak, he's already done the big policy intervention on net zero. He may have others to come, but that makes his conference speech particularly about rhetoric and whether or not he can get the emotion across. We saw a change in his speaking style when he did that net zero intervention last week. So he's clearly How would you
0: characterise his speaking style?
1: Oh, don't ask me to. I just said it was weird. <laughs> it's difficult to explain, but you can just kind of tell when somebody's tried to modify their approach, their way. So, of doing so, it. so what
2: happened? On, sorry, I mean, I James may want to come in, but I think what happened on that is when he did his his vision speech in the in January, the, the Five Pledges speech. Yeah. Um, the, the sort of universal feedback was that he was really, really good in the Q and A, but but didn't quite nail it on the autocue stuff. It felt too much like he was he was just reading out he was yeah. reading out the lines. That he was he is just better at being. Fluent and discussive and off the cuff. And when he can sort of, when people, when he's challenged or something, he can go, well, actually, I've been reading, you know, I, I can, I can quote you every single statistic on this mate. Um, so I think they've been, they've been trying to find a, a way of presenting him that, that works, that feels more like his, his kind of natural conversational style, which he is much better at.
0: Do you agree with that, James? Yeah, I think that Rishi Sunak's
3: great strength is on the micro, on the detail. He's fantastic from talking to ministers as I understand it on knowing the real sort of base, the nitty gritty of an argument but he's not so good at the big picture stuff and that's really been I think the criticism from Conservative MPs who were sort of you know, fairly well aligned to Rishi Sunak. They say, well, what's the big vision? Where are we going? And I think what we saw last week was an attempt to put a bit more uh, meat on the bones there. Boris Johnson, of course, was very good at the big picture stuff. You know, they're actually getting there perhaps and the challenge of governing might have been a bit more difficult. So I think this, this speech this week offers Rishi Sinek a real chance to gonna kind of go from being someone very good at the micro detail, good at kind of clearing up the mess and actually saying, okay, you've done this in the short term, where do you want to take this country in the medium and long term as well? So I think we will see a bit more of that. And of course, as, as you both say, last year he was out of government, uh, the year before, he only made one conference speech as, as chancellor. So I think this is a chance, perhaps, to try and, uh, with all the eyes of the nation and the party on him, to try and get a sort of sense of where his vision is and what he actually wants to do. There's a, there's a set of criticism from lots of parts of the media and the party as well. He's slightly bloodless, a bit technocrat. This is the real chance, because I do think that most MPs believe that there will be an election, either spring or autumn next year. So this, it might be like 2019, of course, we had that snap election, and what that meant for the party conference was a bit more stripped down. But this is the last kind of full force, four-day conference. And that's how MPs are treating it. So I think it is really like a big chance to do a vibe shift, as the kids say.
0: <laughs> and do you think that, that his conference speech will still focus on his five pledges or do you think he's really wanting to move beyond that now?
3: I think a bit of both. Uh, I think you know, obviously he will touch on those five pledges and say, you know, this is what we said at the start of the year, this is what we're delivering. But I do think that as we saw with the net zero, that that wasn't obviously part of any of the five pledges. Um, three of them were about the economy. One was NHS, one was small boats. And you can imagine that he wants to try and make it more about individual households and cost of living. So it's obviously referring to the, the five priorities, but also moving beyond that and delivering, as I say, not just a series of targets, but a kind of sense of ideology or mission or narrative to tell the British people. That's going to be the challenge, because I think as much as everyone wants to talk about 13 years of conservative rule, Rishi Sina wants to say it, frame, reframe it on the lines of, Okay, that's all happened, but this is where we are now. We're in a bit of a hole. We're trying to get out of it. Who's better to do that? Is it Keir Starmer or is it me? And so that's how he'll try and frame it next week.
0: And Robert, do you think that as a sort of starting point with that reframing, the net zero announcement went down broadly as he would have hoped?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously it was attacked very firmly by the people you'd expect to attack it. It went down pretty well with his MPs. It went down pretty well with the, the party's voting base um, who didn't like quite a lot of the policies that were being were being axed. There seems to have been a, a an uptick in, in the polls. And I think, you know, I think part of the issue is that large parts of the commentary at elites, whatever you want to call them, have basically written off the Tories and assume that anything they do is wrong and evil. Not just wrong, but evil. So, you know, whether it's to, to talk about immigration, the nutrient neutrality stuff, there's a huge chunk people who will interpret absolutely everything that's what we say in the in the worst possible light and will just delight in trying to give them a kicking. One sort of inside baseball point to make though is that Sunak's speech I I strongly suspect will be attacked for being policy light. Um, because what a lot of people don't realise is that governments don't really do policy at party conferences anymore, because governments have the power of the news agenda and they don't want to risk every minister making a speech and promising a pot of money, and then that being overshadowed by some random thing some random person has said on the fringe, or the fact that you know protesters thrown orange paint at someone, or, or, or something like that. So, th- so there's, there's been a, a shift over the last decade or so, essentially, towards conferences being much more about the narrative, not just from the Prime Minister, but from all of the individual sub-ministers. That said, one of the interesting things I think this year, um, I is that in previous years this got to the point where ministers were actually doing um, they were offered the choice between giving a set speech and doing a q and I know this because I did think I've hosted about four of them it's very sort of like you know tell us how wonderful you are minister and you're about all your wonderful accomplishments because <laughs> you're, you're, it's like an official party thing and I think I, I don't think that's happening anymore actually I think, I think um, we're going to get a lot more speeches from people rather than having these slightly kind of fringe like panel events
0: Just to go back to that other point that Robert was making, Kath, so in that sense, party confidence is more important for opposition parties who don't otherwise control the news agenda in the same way.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you do see that a bit more in Labour. We'll discuss that in more depth next week, no doubt. Um, But they will be like everyone wanting to announce something or other. But they face the same... As none of it cost any money. That's what I was going to say. They face the same problem, which is the lack of money to be able to do anything anyway. So it's more difficult for them to kind of differentiate. It all all feels a
2: bit bit King Lear, you know, I shall do such things as you know not, but they (laughs) they shall be utterly wonderful.
0: (laughs) Yes, indeed. James, I know you'll have your ear to the ground at The Spectator. Any hints on what the big announcements are going to be from the Prime Minister? No, I think this
3: number 10 operation really keeps its class close to its chest. Uh, and I think that actually there's a sense perhaps that after the kind of over-briefing of the last two leaders, there's a conscious decision to try and sort of play down expectations. And therefore, hopefully, when they when the promise does make an intervention, have more impact that way. I suspect we're going to see things on the on the schools, which obviously one of the great, I think, highlights of the past dozen years or so. And, uh, and that obviously plays into that aspiration narrative. Also, more sort of further announcements, which are aiming at framing Rishi Sinek as being on the side of Bourne so I think it'll be around sort of household items like that. And perhaps there's a deliberate contrast there with some soaring rhetoric of recent years and actually Rishunak's whole point is about trade-offism. You know, I'm going to make the hard decisions. Uh, if you have the, if you pick X, you lose Y. And so I think that that's what we'll be expecting from him. He's never been one for particularly kind of soaring rhetoric. So I'd expect to see sort of more household items, goods related to that, that specific point.
1: Uh, and The other thing to say is, you know, as Robert said, protests are a big feature of party conference as well. You know, it's a question mark as to whether or not the HS2 debate has either been pushed far enough into the long grass or has burned brightly enough that the energy has gone out of it. By the time that's by train or by minibus, Conservative politicians have got up to Manchester. Helicopter, but- surely. Helicopter <laughs> in some cases. But obviously Manchester, HS2, it's a- an obvious likely flashpoint for either Protests or interventions from local politicians, or who knows what. And then there's always. I don't, think,
2: I, don't think the, I don't think there was going to be an absence of protests at the Tory no. Party Conference before the HS2 round.
1: No, no, no.
0: Now, here's news of something we're launching this week.
3: We were told back in 2016 that people in this country have had enough of experts. We don't think that's true. I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe.
0: I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government.
3: And I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. On our brand new podcast, The Expert Factor, we're standing up for deep knowledge and analysis as a way of helping solve Britain's problems.
0: From the economy to the constitution, from tax to education to defence, we'll be taking an in-depth look at the country's challenges and how to solve them.
3: And of course, how to
2: pay for it all. That's the expert factor. Essential analysis from three of Britain's most
3: influential think tanks, every week, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Yes, it's another new podcast, but yes, this one really is different. I mean, there's a border point, I think, about uh, party conferences, uh, which is they're big money-making opportunities. The Conservatives declare how much they make out of their party conference, and last year that was 6.2 million. Uh, So that's not an insubstantial contribution to the party coffers. And that, I think, is uh, interestingly one reason, one thing that will be factored into calculations about when the election is next year, because parties, everybody's talking about an October election, but uh, since the Second World War, we haven't had a, a time when we've had campaigning for an election at the same time as uh, party conferences it seems pretty unlikely that they'll want to forgo the opportunity yep. to make that money uh, so that's why for my money it's it's more likely that if there's an autumn election it will be later in the autumn more so it's be a early.
3: cold dark wet november election
2: well rather. we got used to
0: it last time right we proved that you can do a december election um yep, people true. did come out they did vote um so i don't think the fear is necessarily there around that anymore
2: I never knew that. I never knew that that was such a uh, big reason for the party conferences and why an October election was unlikely.
0: Well, we don't know how much Labour make because they they declare their uh, finances uh, you know along in, in a sort of big batch with with other money that they make. But it we, is significant.
3: We can be pretty certain that they're making more year on year because simply from going and looking at the number of business stalls there. And uh, the costs
0: have gone up this year. I mean, they've, uh, they've recognised, I think, that they c- can put the costs up and the conference centre, I think, in Liverpool is probably a bit more expensive than some of the other venues they've used. So wow. as an uh, organisation putting on fringe events, we've noticed those costs rise. Head over to the Expert Factor feed wherever you get your podcasts to listen to the full episode. Okay, let's step away from the Prime Minister's priorities and take a look at what else is going to be going on in the party and in government. James, you co-wrote a biography of Liz Truss. She was at the IFG last week, as you may have noticed, and is going to be speaking at the so-called Great British Growth Rally at the conference. What is she up to?
3: So this is an event she's headlining uh, on the Monday, 12 o'clock, period, alongside Simon Clarke and Priti Patel as well. And I think, really, this is going to be an attempt, I think, as Rob Colville said, to look beyond the next election, really. I don't think Rishi is seriously going to face any major internal concerns this side of an election. For them, it's not about sort of restoring Liz Truss. It's about trustonomics and, and the future of the party, the battle for the soul of the party. Most Conservative MPs, I think would accept there's a very good chance that they they might lose the next election. So therefore, it comes what's going to take place after that election. And if there is, say, for instance, a spring contest, and there's a summer election next year, hypothetically, this conference is going to be uh, a real chance to position people and position ideas. And also, I think, get a sense of where the grassroots is. I remember in 2018 conference, all the events with Jacob Rees-Mogg were packed out. It was around the block. Mogmentum, exactly. Him and Boris Johnson. Boris gave that speech about let the lion roar. And that was a good marker about where the membership was, who was on the up, and of course, dissent with the leadership as a whole as well because this was the Chuck Checkers conference. So I think it'll be interesting to see what events are packed out, which front benches and which kind of leading lights like Liz Truss are attracting the speakers. And I think that is a good sort of temperature check for where the membership is and who is getting people excited. As I say, which might be the last contest in government, uh, might be the last contest before the election. So I think with, with Liz Truss, it's really restating her own agenda. For others, it's about putting forward their own, perhaps, leisure ambitions but doing so in a way which isn't seen as completely undermining Sinat, but really more about laying down a marker for the future
2: yeah and, and it's interesting that James mentioned the Chuck Checkers conference that the, 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 the word rally has a sort of particular resonance it was a conservative home rally on Checkers and Brexit that Boris addressed which basically dwarfed uh, just just kind of knocked Theresa May it was just very clearly counter-programming it was very clearly saying look this is where the grassroots are not with you Theresa and so I think the hope will be that there will be such energy and enthusiasm behind the growth agenda that Rishi goes, oh, gosh, I better cut taxes after all.
0: (laughs) Kath, Sola has been making headlines. I mean, we've had a pretty clear steer from number 10 that they signed off her speech. So no concerns about collective responsibility. But what's she up to?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a issues that she believes in, but contrast that with the approach that Theresa May took as Home Secretary, which was to try and keep her head down as much as possible. Obviously, Suilla Rahman doesn't approach it that way. It reflects what we were talking about earlier on. If it was all signed off, it's a way of getting that energy out the way before conference. So. Suella's so had her, her moment in the limelight and perhaps has a, a quieter conference. I haven't looked to see where she is, if she's got any major in-conversations or fringes that she's around doing. I mean, the other conference that I remember was two years ago when Liz Truss was the person walking around with the massive entourage, everyone following her around, looking for her every move. And, and obviously a year later, she had her one and only conference as prime minister. I don't know, given what you know, Robert was saying, everyone will want to be somewhat on board with the Prime Minister and not rock the boat massively. James?
3: On that point about uh, Sarah Ravman, I think she's only doing one event other than her main speech, which is with the Common Sense Group of blue-collar Conservative MPs, and that includes the likes of Esther McVeigh and John Hayes. So I think that's probably her kind of wing of the party, as it were, and that will be interesting to see what she says there. And I think you're right about the point about Liz Truss in 2021 conference. She was the darling of LGBT Tories, and that really, that month, was when she moved up to second in the bookies' favourites to replace Boris Johnson, equal with Michael Gove, just behind Rishi Sunak. So I think this will be a good chance. And, of course, remember, Suella Brown, just on that specific point, you know, last year she caused a lot of headlines with her comments about... Um, uh, Indian visas. So it'll be interesting to see if any ministers are seen as kind of deviating from the government line on it, but also not just how many events they're addressing, but also which events they're addressing and which parts of the party they're speaking to. So I think for So Abraha in particular, it'll be giving reassurance and succor to her supporters in the common sense group.
0: James, can I just, uh, genuine curiosity, your thoughts on why she went to Washington to give her latest speech on immigration? Is it just because this close to party conference, she couldn't do it here? It would have been too much stealing of the limelight? I wasn't
3: so sure myself. I mean, obviously, in America, there's a sort of enormous attraction, and you saw this with Liz Truss's speech earlier this year at Heritage uh, with these think tanks. I was quite surprised by that, and a number of Conservative MPs I spoke to were a little surprised too. I don't know the ins and outs of uh, why she chose to speak at the AEI.
2: I mean, the, the obvious um, explanation, apart from the fact that everyone loves going to America, is that she did actually want to start an international conversation on this, because you can't change this stuff without. Having other countries on board, and I mean, I, actually, I mean, the interesting thing is that if you strip away the sort of suela style vibes around it, what she was saying was pretty much identical to what New Labour were saying, and to what the French have said, and the, you know, and then lots and lots of people in lots and lots of countries in Europe, which is that you know, the, the the current refugee you know, the, the, this regime from 1951 is is not really working in an age of of um, absolutely vast people movements, um, which are which are probably going to get larger.
0: Yes. Although I did think one billion people on the move was possibly a slight exaggeration. Well, seven.
2: So it, it that's actually a figure from our think tank, which was we were slightly surprised to find on every front page. <laughs> um, but no, it, I mean, so it's it's, it's not one well, billion people on the move. It's if you add up the people who have a theoretical, you know, who theoretically, if they got to the UK, could make a reasonable claim uh, for discrimination and persecution, it, it, it does come to seven hundred eighty million. We weren't saying that seven hundred eighty million people are coming to the to the UK, and I don't think Suella was saying that either.
0: I think it's just been how it's been reported. Then in some some places, Robert. Who else should we be keeping an eye on at conference? Who else is interesting? Well,
2: obviously the key metric is some um, who is who uh, the, the cen- who, who the centre for policy studies have deigned <laughs> to allow on the stage. I'm um, I mean, actually it is it is a real problem because you can you know, if you're hosting a. A program of events. You know, you have to do some sponsored events to actually pay, pay for the whole thing. Then you have to reflect all of your policy program and then, you know, so actually it's quite hard to find, you know, it would be just lovely to do back-to-back in-conversation events with every cabinet minister, but you, you unfortunately can't do that. The, in the bookies the bookies odds, the leadership contest last time, you know, that's the obvious place to, to start if you're talking about 2024. I mean, I think, you know, we're doing events with, I mean, Michael Gove is speaking who's always fascinating. We're doing, a, I'm doing a one-on-one with the Chancellor. Grant Shapps is doing several in-conversations with a sort of defence theme, as you'd expect, given his, his Kemi Bednock is doing our our, our our evening reception. Institute of Economic Affairs and Taxpayers Alliance, who have a, a joint programme. Tom Tugan hat's probably going to be you know, James Cleverley. There's Steve Barclay. There are a lot of people who are going to be uh, around. And-
1: yeah, and, and just one other quick point. I mean, the other thing that you've got now is a lot of Conservative MPs stepping down and a lot of new candidates. And, you know, conferences are also an opportunity for prospective parliamentary candidates to start making their name if they are not already a uh, sort of major figure in... James, I feel
0: the need to give you the opportunity for some free advertising of Spectator events.
3: Thank you. In that spirit of plugging one's own events, I would recommend the In Conversation with Kerry Badnock on the Tuesday before the Spectator champagne party because I think that would be really interesting. She's the one to watch. I think that she was kind of the surprise dark horse of the Summer Leadership Contest last year. I mean, she would have
2: got everything interesting she wants to say out of the way at the CPS, obviously, but... uh...
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay, okay, Um, Let's... uh... <laughs> Carry on, James. Come along and see for
2: yourself.
3: Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, no, I think that it'll it'll be... Interesting to see sort of the positioning jockeying for what's going on on the right, but also in terms of candidate selection. I know, for instance, you know Liz Truss has kept a close eye on that and who are being selected and what that says about the membership. I mean, I've looked at the candidate selections for the replacing the outgoing members. They tend to be much more uh, local councillors who are being selected for the obvious reason that it's perhaps easier to get across to a cynical local electorate that you've got someone local who cares about you. But there are a sort of you know national politicians getting involved in, in individual candidate selections. I've just finished reading Tory Wars, which was about the Hague Portillo rouse before the two 2000- thousand. One, uh, election and the subsequent leadership election after that and it was really interesting the kind of efforts made uh, the allegations made that uh, but to get michael portillo supporters selected as candidates and what that meant obviously when it came down to it and i think michael portillo was knocked out by one vote when it came down to the final two between ken clark and uh, Ian duncan smith so it'll be interesting to see who is being selected because of course next time you know the membership will have a final say but who the mps get on that ballot will be crucial
2: yeah, although I mean, I think um, it's worth bearing in mind within the Tory party, the central party has an enormous amount of power. Not so much in the sort of routine selections, but essentially if you're an MP who is thinking of stepping down, you will probably have had a quiet word with number 10 and said, look, I'm thinking of going. And they'll say, well, tell you what, well, they, they may, may not say that to say this, but you know, the logical thing is to say, well, I'll tell you what, if you want to end up in the Lords, wait until a couple of months before so that we can slot in someone we like rather than getting someone we might not like. Because local parties, have, you know, cchq has a voice in the kind of long list and the short list but then local parties are left to, their, to themselves so if, if there is a, a, a large number of people who are stepping that decide to step down because because the polls are bad i think um, there will be a there will be a sort of parachuting so number 10 will actually the outgoing number 10 would have a lot of say at that point although of course the Tories may actually win the next election in which case they will have some loyal supporters ready to vote for them
0: <laughs> and i was going to say and therein lies the problem with the house of lords or one of the problems with the house of lords James, what do you think Labour should be worrying about in relation to the Conservative conference? Well, I think if you look at Labour's
3: response to policy announcement, often it is to wait and see before committing to anything. So you saw with Net Zero, with Richard Sinek's announcement uh, two weeks ago, Keir Starmer put out this very bland, boring tweet a couple of hours afterwards, merely talking about energy commitments. And then it wasn't until that evening, so hours later, that he decided to then say, no, we're gonna keep the original timescale for, for twenty thirty and internal combustion engines. So in the sense that I think Labour are really watching and waiting, there's a bit of shadow boxing going on in terms of when they should actually when they should actually commit to a policy or not. And I think we've seen a couple of U-turns, I mean, just today, backing away from what they've been doing on private schools, charity charitable status. All this is to say that I think that there is a sense perhaps in Among some Conservative advisors, that Labour aren't aren't as good as their poll lead makes out, 15, 20-point lead. And then actually, if they can try and get on the front foot and try and confuse and uh, bamboozle Labour with some new policy announcements and some dividing lines, in which case they're kind of torn. And the hope is really that the Tories want to get the poll lead down to about 10 points and then hopefully make it competitive. They know that the backbenchers on Keir Starmer's side are a lot more jumpy. They shut up when Keir Starmer's 15, 20 points ahead in the polls. But if it comes down, there'll be people who break ranks. And that's what the Conservatives want to try and portray the opposition as a divided party. So really, it'll be the key ways to kind of split, splat own advisors about how best to respond. I think net zero was the start of that. So it'll be trying to find those kind of key wedge issues, which would divide Labour, and also try and make out Rich Sunak as being on the side of ordinary voters.
0: And of course, we will need to remember that Labour will need at least a 10 point swing to get a majority at all. So that's a sort of closer target. Um, Robert?
2: I was just going to say, yeah, there was a lovely meme going around about, you know, if the Tories announced the slaughter of the firstborn, Keir Starmer would say, well, that's a sort of very interesting idea and we'll go away and we'll study it. it and we'll think about <laughs> it and then maybe maybe come back, a, you know.
3: How does the Red Wall play about it? <laughs>
2: But of course, I mean, everyone talks about the Red Wall. But actually, I mean, one of the really important things to mention is that, I mean, obviously Scotland matters hugely, but like, even if Labour win the Red Wall, they're not getting back into power, given where the parties are. And unless the SNP kind of collapses, Labour need to win some really heartland, home counties, south of England seats of the... Kind that Blair, some of some of them that Blair even didn't didn't win, or they need the Lib Dems to do a do a, do a hell of a job in the seats that they're facing the Tories.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean it, it's the age old proviso, of, you know, we could still be a year plus away and look at the last year and, and think how far things have changed. So, And then look at the year before that. I still keep remembering back to that 2021 conference where people were going around saying, Boris Johnson could be here for 10 years. Yeah, you know? well,
2: that's, that's what I think. There's there's a lot less scope for people to suddenly realise that they love the Tory party again than yeah. there was at that point for people to suddenly realise they actually hated the Tory party.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing we're still, you, know, you made the point earlier about the commentariats sort of kicking the Conservatives for whatever they do. The question is whether that's actually the electorate where. The the anti-conservative vote has just set in and there's very little that you can do to change it or whether or not the green shoots of the most recent sort of poll uptake are the signs that there is still something that you can do. And I think it's going to be more like next May when we get an idea, not because of the local elections then, but just because it's going to be a bit clearer whether or not there is actually anything that Rishi Sunak can do or the wider context can do to change the electorate's position right now.
2: Yeah, and, and just the parallel with 97, what happens in 97 is not a massive swing of support towards Labour. It's basically, Blair seeming safe enough for Tory voters to stay home. It's yeah. the, Between 92 yeah. and 97, it's not the Labour vote that changes usually, it's, it's the Tory vote. Yeah. So so in some ways, perhaps the the stuff about net zero and all the rest of it now is, is not just about the dividing line. It's trying to present an energising choice to those agnostic Tories who think, oh, well, we might as well get a Labour yeah. government and it won't make much difference.
1: So what we're basically saying is that despite saying it's make or break for Rishi Sunak, the conference may make no difference whatsoever, either because it takes longer or because conference speeches don't really get listened to by the public. Well, that's a good place to end, I think. Thank you so much to Kath Haddon and especially to Robert Colville
0: and James Hill. Really great to have you both here today and perhaps we'll see you in Manchester. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms and do please leave us a review. We would love both a pre- and post-conference poll bounce please. And check out our website too, you'll find our new report on NHS funding written by our senior fellow Nick Timmins. all our commentary on the Conservative conference and details of our exciting programme of events, yes we have lots of exciting events too, at the Conservative and then Labour conferences, as well as all the events we'll be holding here in London. But for now we're off on the road, as is the Conservative Party. Have a great weekend, everyone.